Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LeBurge. It is Tuesday, February the 11th. I am here with Paul Perot. Good morning, sir. Good morning. You know, I think that people don't see the guys in the background nearly enough. And on radio, they almost never see us. Well, they don't see uh, us. us. That's, there's, a, that's, there's a point to that. You know, this is radio. <laughs> Audio, you know? I know. But they don't hear you very often either. And uh, I want them to know that um, none of this magic would happen without you. So thank you uh, for all that you do every day to make this possible. You're welcome. At no time do my fingers leave my hands while I do all the magic. <laughs> all right. So where in the word are you today? Uh, I hope you know where you are in the world. I mean, like, you know, sort of oh, where you are in terms of your feet on the ground, um, in terms of where where you're going, where you're headed, where you've been. But where in the word are you today? I am in Psalm 145. The first eight verses say, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. Every day I will extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. I then meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power. He's talking about the works here. They tell of the power of your awesome works. I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. So it, it occurs to me that the psalmist who prayed this and then penned this thousands of years ago is now doing what he says others have done, which is that one generation commends your works to another, telling of your mighty acts. And the psalmist, David, is then doing the same. He is commending the works of God to our generation. And we, in turn, do that for the next generation. So as we are in the word of God today, we are also ambassadors of that word in the world that God so loves. So today, I encourage you to identify some of those awesome works of God. Uh, Maybe it is the revelation of God in creation itself. Maybe it is something that God has revealed to you um, through an experience in terms of, I'm thinking here, the way that God redeems, genuinely redeems, where God brings reconciliation when nothing else could possibly make that happen. Maybe you have experienced the forgiveness of real sin, and you could commend that mighty act of God to someone else today. That is what sharing the gospel of Jesus looks like. People need to know what Christ did upon the cross. Absolutely. He also, they also need to know what implications that has in our lives, how God has used that to change us. 
Next up, I've got uh, Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. He and I are going to uh, talk today at the intersection of politics and religion. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. He is the chair and professor of political science, director of the Center for Political Studies at Cedarville University. And uh, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a baseball mood this morning, um, Mark, so I haven't decided yet if you're going to get, I don't know, soft balls right over the plate or whether or not I have some curves in mind. <laughs> hey, you can always mix it up. I'm, I'm good. I know. I appreciate that. It's real conversation, and uh, and I thoroughly enjoy it. So, um, so thanks for being with us as always. Here was here's oh, been a question. Pleasure. Yeah, this is a question that's been kind of rolling around in my mind um, for the last couple of years in relationship to the Republican Party. It is now rolling around in my mind in relationship to the Democrats as well. Um, how does the person who ends up with the party's nomination, so Trump on the Republican side, potentially right. Bernie Sanders on the Democrat side, how does that candidate, how does that person then change the party? Like, how does that um, manifest itself? Well, it shows up in a lot of different ways, and sometimes it might take years for those changes to really show up. I mean, you think first of kind of the formal documents of the party, things like a party platform. So, you know, every four years, we always think of those party conventions as those big ceremonial moments where the presidential candidate is officially uh, put into practice and they make a speech and their balloons dropping and all that sort of thing. That's true. That's kind of the highlight of the of the convention. But the convention also uh, gets together for you know a week ahead of time and they're pounding out platform language. They're figuring out what the party stands for. They're voting on resolutions. They're voting on issues. And that's really where the party defines itself, at least in terms of its documents. Um, the president, the person who's going to win that nomination can have a big effect even on that nominating process or that platform process that takes place at the convention. And then, of course, if they're in office, like President Trump's in office right now, uh, he'll be affecting the people who will eventually be delegates to the upcoming Republican convention this summer. And so I'd expect President Trump's influence to really show up more fully in the Republican platform and the Republican Party even more, more so this summer than, uh, than the last several years. So let's dig into that just a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, if I were going to make a parallel here to, um, to maybe, to maybe the church experience that people who are listening would sure. have, there's this like espoused yeah. theology. There's the stuff that's in our documents, and then there's right. the stuff that's actually lived out. Um, yep. So there, there are times that those in leadership actually lead the entire institution by departing from what is in our, you know, commonly agreed upon espoused, let's say, creeds um, or, or confessions, and they actually lead us to a different place. And so sometimes the language, um, what we say about ourselves, follows um, a change in a change in behavior, a change in policy. I feel like that's sort of what's happening um, in the GOP. There are these espoused uh, sort of historical commitments um, those have, in some cases, been abandoned, and there are now right. new new practices in place, which will result in what I'm hearing you say an actual then change to the language. I think there's probably some truth to that, but it, it's, it's, it gets pretty complicated, as you might imagine. Um, 
you know, that, that it's a great connection to say, you know, we have sort of our statement of faith on the one hand, and we have the way that we preach every Sunday on the other. And there's a big dichotomy there. You know, you might question as someone who's investigating a church, let's say, the, the real integrity of the thing. You know, do we really believe what we say we believe when I don't hear those kinds of things being talked about on a regular basis? On the other hand, you also know, for example, when a politician goes to, to run an election and to win votes, they're going to make their arguments in the broadest possible terms to attract as many voters as they can, while ideally still being connected to those principles that might be connected to that platform. I guess what you really, what you really don't want to see are disconnections where there's clear conflict, let's say, between what the president's saying on the one hand and what the platform says on the other. When there's contradiction there, then you can say, you know, I'm not sure they really believe what they say, or, as you said, they're in the process of this change. It's just going to take a long time for it to be reflected. Now, you know, I, I think it's easy to be critical of President Trump and argue the Republicans are sort of drifting in a direction they have not been historically, and I think there's a good bit of truth of that. Um, certainly their rhetoric and their approach to things like trade um, and even the size of government, I mean, those things have changed in the last several years. But you know, if we're really critical and we think of our recent history, I'm not sure the Republicans have been all that interested in reducing the size of government for quite some or time. Debt. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, or yeah, debt. or the national yeah. debt or the budget mm-hmm. deficits. I mean, President Bush, I think, is a relatively conservative person, but really wasn't all that interested in those things outside of an effort to curb Social Security spending at one point, which didn't go well. Uh, President Trump seems to be in that in that line as well. Even President Reagan, kind of the line of the party to some extent. Yeah, his administration saw an increase in the size of government and an increase in the national debt as well. And so, you know, I think the Republicans have these principles. I'm not sure they've always done a great job living those out when they've actually been in power. President Trump may actually be putting some different language in place, though, which might take some of those past practices and turn them into actual documentation. All right. And then um, we have the same or a similar uh, dynamic going on in the Democrat Party. You and I need to take a very brief break. When we come back... Um, I would like for you to, to sort of roam around in the the, the Sanders effect um, and and what the and how Bernie Sanders would affect the Democrat Party if in fact he were he were to become their candidate. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, Okay, Mark, let's pivot from the Republicans to the Democrats here and let's talk about, I'll just call it the Sanders effect. Um, How how has the Democrat Party already um, changed because of his presence in the race last time around, this time around? Um, And then the prospects of what the party looks like if he becomes the nominee. Yeah, it's amazing for people who've been watching American politics pretty closely over the last couple of decades to think that Bernie Sanders could be on the verge of being the front runner for the Democratic presidential nomination. I mean, Bernie Sanders has always been viewed as sort of the the outlier senator from Vermont who's not really a Democrat, who's really more a little bit more of a socialist, who kind of just worked with the Democrats because they were the closest thing to him in the Senate. He was always fiercely independent. And I would have really never called him a Democrat until he decided to run for the presidency from that party, which is a remarkable thing. Um, But then he ran, and he clearly tapped into something within that party in 2016. Uh, He appealed very strongly to young voters. Uh, He's inspirational to young voters, which is pretty remarkable. 
uh, for a guy who's 70, going to be 79 years old uh, coming up here in September. And he's creating a generation of people, it looks like, within the Democratic Party that come much closer to his policies than the rest of the mainstream parts of the party. So things like Medicare for all, things like universal child care, uh, massive redistributions of wealth from the wealthy to other people in society. These are not shocking. These are not um, out of the ordinary policy positions anymore in the Democratic Party. Uh, these are kind of mainstream now that Bernie has staked out this turf. And to me, it looks like the other candidates have moved closer to him than he's really moved over the last several years. And so, you know, I think he is pulling the party to the left a good bit, and he's exciting a part of the party that now uh, I think you're looking at a real struggle for what the Democratic Party really stands for. And uh, this nomination process is going to be one way we can see uh, maybe who's winning the struggle right now and who's losing. Well, that's a good transition for us into um, into this primary process that we're now in. Um, tonight is, am I right? Tonight? Did it already start? I yeah, think it already yep. started. It I think started, we're in the middle started, of yeah. it. Yep. Right, right, right. It, that there's a, yep. there's one tiny little town where, uh, where the process began last night in, uh, in New Hampshire. Um, and so yep. today primary voters will, uh, will go to the polls in New Hampshire and they will, um, determine, you know, who, who at this point in their state, um, you know, has the strongest support, for becoming the Democrat nominee uh, for the office of president. Um, I don't know. Give us a little bit of a preview of the New Hampshire primary from where you sit. Sure. Yeah, right now, according to the polling, the recent polling, you know, that's taken place since the Iowa caucuses last week, uh, Bernie is still solidly the favorite. Uh, right now, it'd be a shocking upset for anyone other than Bernie to walk away with a pretty good win uh, this evening. So, the argument that we're looking at, or really the exciting part of the primary day, I think, is who's going to finish in second place. Um, Pete Buttigieg has been kind of bubbling up over the last couple of weeks, and he did well in Iowa last week, and there's some thought that he's going to do well in New Hampshire today. But if we've been looking at tracking polls, you know, there are people who do polls every day, and they kind of tabulate results over the last several days, and it sort of shows an interesting view in a place like New Hampshire. Those tracking polls actually show Amy Klobuchar closing in on Pete's position in second place, and they show her rising and Pete falling. And if the trends continue, there's a very real chance that a Klobuchar could finish second today, potentially in New Hampshire, and Buttigieg potentially third, which I think would be very damaging to the Buttigieg campaign and potentially very good uh, for Klobuchar, which is fascinating, of course. That means Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren may be duking it out for third and fourth, which if we'd have talked about this uh, two months ago to say that in New Hampshire, Biden and Warren are going to finish a distant third and fourth, uh, or fourth and fifth even, then uh, what exactly are we looking at uh, in the Democratic Party right now? Uh, it's going to be an interesting day, but I'm not sure it's going to settle anything. If Bernie wins and we have this sort of train wreck behind Bernie where there's a lot of close finishes, then that means we've got a long way to go before this thing gets sorted out. Okay, and then can can I just ask a uh, a question about a person who I guess I kind of regard as a wild card and yet right. – and yet kind of a stabilizer, and that's Mike Bloomberg. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bloomberg's not on the ballot today. He can get written in, of course, but he's not on the ballot today. Uh, but he is spending massive amounts of money in places like New Hampshire, even in places where I am in Ohio. We're seeing lots of Bloomberg advertising, and it's rather historic what he's doing. He's putting in hundreds of millions of dollars into advertising in order to raise his profile, even though he's not really participating right now. 
Um, he's having an effect, though. If we look at the most recent polls, nationally speaking, Bloomberg is percolating up in the field into second and third place in some of those polls now. Biden is falling in those polls. Uh, and what's interesting to me, Bloomberg seems to be taking a fairly big percentage of African-American votes from Joe Biden. I don't know if I can explain this necessarily, uh, but Bloomberg's showing to be maybe a viable alternative uh, in this thing as we move forward. I'm not sure Bloomberg has a great chance of winning uh, but what he has a great chance of doing potentially is turning this thing into a fractured field to the point where we don't have a, a real strong uh, sense of who's going to win the majority, maybe even until we get to the convention itself. And so I think you're accurately described a, a massive wild card um, who's going to further complicate things. I, I, I find him a particularly fascinating um, conundrum for the Democratic Party because, you know, the, the billion he's not just a billionaire. <laughs> like. That's right. Yeah. He's like crazy billionaire status. And so he can afford to do this and he can afford to keep doing this. Like he doesn't he has no limit in terms of that other than just his own willingness to do this. OK, um, could we spend a couple of minutes talking about the evolution of um, what's described as the Muslim ban? Now, that is not quite right. It is a ban right. on uh, on immigration and travel from uh, from countries that happen to be, in many cases, Muslim majority, but that's not actually right. what the ban is about. Can you talk with us about that? Yeah, the Trump administration, you know, this has been a controversial issue since President Trump really got into office. Uh, he started a ban, uh, a so-called ban, I think you're right to kind of put quotation marks around that, uh, from countries like Iran, Iraq, Libya, and some other countries that have a history of producing terrorists and people who are a security threat to the United States. He started that early in his presidency. It really became a, a massive uh, legal issue, got bogged down in the federal courts. Eventually, the Supreme Court kind of upheld um, a modified version of that ban. Well, now the administration's come forward and added some new countries uh, to a so-called ban, places like Myanmar, Kyrgyzstan, uh, and some others. Also heavily Muslim countries, for the most part, um, also for security reasons. But this one is a little different. This one really only affects visas. It affects long-term stays. It doesn't affect short-term travel back and forth. Um, so I, you know, I think calling it a ban is probably not quite accurate, but it is interesting the president continues to kind of ratchet up pressure on some of these countries in an effort to limit uh, Muslim travel back and forth from the United States of America. I also think it's interesting this hasn't really gotten a whole lot of political play uh, right now because of things like the State of the Union, impeachment, and primaries, and caucuses. And so it's kind of traveling under the radar a little bit. It'll be interesting to see if it picks up steam here in the next few weeks. All right. Any, uh, we got one more minute. Anything else you want to talk yeah. about in a minute? <laughs> you know, it's always interesting. Things are unfolding right now. Uh, I think it's, it's easy for us to kind of get caught up in the day-to-day -day of this, but uh, politically speaking, President Trump's in a really strong position. I think if you had to bet money right now, President Trump's the favorite to win re-election in November. Um, and right now, I think the, the, the most interesting thing is to see if it's Bernie against the field uh, for the Democrats. As you said earlier, if Bernie manages to walk away with this nomination, uh, we're looking at two consecutive presidential election cycles where we have these massive outsider campaigns step in and potentially redefine political parties right before our eyes. We've never seen anything like this in American politics. And so uh, right now it's kind of – it's historic as we're watching it. And for people like me, it's fascinating. Uh, but I can imagine for people who are watching from the sidelines, it's just, oh, how do we even know what's going on? 
Uh, but just buckle up and stick with it. It's going to be a lot of fun over the next uh, eight or nine months. Absolutely. We think we uh, we're, we appreciate you being with us uh, on this journey. And thank you in advance for all the help you're going to be over the next several months as we all experience this together. That's Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Uh, we, we appreciate um, we just appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. Absolutely. All right. We're going to uh, take a quick break. Um, we're going to hear from Greg Laurie and then we'll be right back. All right, so would you take your kids into an active war zone? Like, as a Christian, would you would you say to yourself, you know what, um, I I I follow a God who came into the world um, to save sinners who couldn't save themselves, and I read the headlines of the day and I see people around the world who are literally desperate. You know, they're 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 literally desperate, and they won't be saved unless help comes from the outside. Would you go? David Eubanks said, yeah, I'll go. Um, And over the course of time, you know, as his family grew, that means that, you know, not only do he and his wife go into these literally hot zones, literal war zones to help save people, help rescue them. People who would otherwise die in the midst of a conflict zone live um, because of what I will describe as the ministry of what became the Free Burma Rangers. You may ask yourself, why are they called that? Well, this mission kid, who then became a captain in the U.S. Special Forces, um, after that, you know, was like, well, what now? And God basically said, go to the worst places on the earth and do the most good you can. I'll just show you as you go. And 20 years ago, that meant he went to the Karen people in Myanmar um, who were being slaughtered by their government. He has since gone uh, to other places, and as his family has grown, he and his wife and kids go into these war zones. Uh, today, they are in Syria. They have already been this morning doing food distribution, and we're going to talk with David Eubank in just a moment about uh, the Free Burma Rangers, and we're going to talk about a two-night Fathom movie event about them and their ministry, which is going to be happening February 24 and 25 here in the United States. So stick with me, Free Burma Rangers, up next. Sometimes parents assume the only way to be good parents is to be in control of their teens and to stop them from making mistakes. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you've got a death grip on your child or you swoop in to save them from a potential failure, get a hold of yourself. Hey, a good parent actually gives away control to their growing child. It's the only way your teen will learn through the decisions he makes. So, it's time to quit doing everything for your teen. Think of it as a well-deserved vacation. You get to let go of some of the responsibility you've been carrying around and let your teen take some of the weight. Mom, Dad, maybe it's time to let go. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. is a documentary film exploring the extraordinary 20-year journey of missionaries Dave and Karen Eubank. Uh, the film actually follows them and their three young children as they venture into war zones where they fight to bring hope. It is going to be in theaters for a Fathom event February 24 and 25 
Uh, and you can check that out at fathomevents.com. Joining me now is David Eubank. Welcome, sir. Hey, thank you, ma'am. Um, so let's start with this. Where are you in the world, um, and what have you already been doing today? Well, I am in Syria, northeast Syria, outside a little town called Menbij, just west of the Euphrates River. And today we've been feeding people who fled Idlib. That's one of the last major contested areas of Syria. So when you um, when you think about these these precious people who fled their homes in Idlib, and you know, and that is certainly a city. Um, which we bathed in prayer when it was under direct assault. It is uh, it is the name of a town Christians who have been paying attention to world events will recognize. Um, and and so when you encounter them, them, David, tell us what their life is like now. Well, first of all, thank you for saying they're precious. And you almost made me cry then. And Lord Jesus, help me answer this the way you want, and thanks to this program, in your name, and bless these people. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, these people, there's all kinds of people in Idlib. There are civilians who are stuck in the middle of this war and were not able to escape. Some now have, some can't still. There are jihadis who are fighting against Assad's government. There are non-jihadis, ex-Syrian army military, who are trying to get rid of a very oppressive dictator all kinds of people and all kinds of reasons why they've been resisting the Assad regime. But when the Russians and Iranians came to reinforce Assad, whatever these groups were, they're all losing, including, we could say, the good guys. And certainly the civilians who are most of the people, the bulk of the people are not in the fight. They're stuck in the middle of the fight. In fact, one of the escapees from Idlib today said Hezbollah, that's an Iranian militia working with Assad, came to their town last week and decapitated six children next door and said they're next. And so they thought, we can't stay here anymore. And Mm. even though we might get killed trying to escape, we can't stay. So the people we're meeting, we were in a snowstorm two days ago and there were kids with not only no socks, but no shoes, barefoot. It was about 20 degrees and there was no warm place to go. And they're walking around. Unbelievable. So with God's help and the help of other people, we were able to give them shoes, boots, little plastic boots and socks, food and blankets. And that's what we've been doing today also. It's not snowing today, but it's still below freezing. And these people are resilient. Um, they say, thank you. They smile. They say, God sent you. Um, David, there's no way that anybody is going to be able to um, encounter your story and the story of your family and not ask themselves um, a very provocative question. And that is, how does this person and how does this family have the courage um, and the resources to go and do what at some level uh, burns in the heart of everyone to go and do? Like we see people in these desperate columns fleeing these horrible situations around the world. And I know that for you, um, you know, God ignited this with the Korean people more than 20 years ago now. And so talk, right. talk, talk with us about your own journey. And then because people want to know where where is the reservoir from which this kind of water is drawn? Oh, wow. That's God. You know, whenever 
we're helping people and sometimes they don't say thank you or they're cheating you or someone's trying to literally kill you, you can be very frustrated with people. And that's when you got to rem- and then you'll run out because my reservoir doesn't have a lot. But then if I remember, wait, I'm not serving them. I'm serving Jesus. And he brought me here and I can serve him all day long because he's going to give me strength. And he's asking me to then serve these people. I can do it. And so they can't offend me enough to quit. They can't cheat us enough. They can't try to kill us enough to make us quit. Because in the end, I'm not really working for them. They're just another person like me. I'm working for my master. And he says, help his children. And that way I can love. And so that reservoir comes from God. And it's available to anyone that asks. Sometimes we don't want to ask. I'm tired. I don't want to do that. I don't even like these people. I don't want to like these people. And I think that's true whether you're in America or anywhere in the world. There's people you don't even want to like for for sometimes good reasons. But if you can say, okay, I give that up, Lord. I give that up. You give me what I don't have, which is love, which is humility, which is forgiveness, which is courage. I protect me too. All these things God gives to us. And that's where our strength comes from. I think too, we're all, you know, we're all made differently. One thing I love about God, it doesn't matter how you're made. He can do impossible things through you that you couldn't do on your own. A special forces team, if God's not with it, cannot accomplish near as much as a 70-year-old lady who's walking with God. That's just how the world, that's how it works. And we make movies and video games and try to pretend like it's not that way, but it is that way. The most powerful force in this world is love. The most lasting one is love. So I think that's where we want our strength from, and that's where God gives you freely, and it doesn't run out. In terms of what I, I, I feel, you know, again, we're all different in that I like action. I like things that go boom. I like the challenge. My wife doesn't. She doesn't want things that go boom at all. So we're very different. But for me, I try to put it this way. Lord, I believe, I see that you, I don't just believe, I can see it. You called us to Burma. You called us Sudan, Iraq, and Syria. Your will only and first. So that's our spiritual reason we go because he called us. And once we're there, we, we can see things are wrong. So intellectually, we know this is immoral. So intellectually, I'm going to stand against it. And then as we know the situation and meet people, they love us and we love them. Often they love us first. It's quite amazing. And then when you love someone, it's over. It's over. You're not going to run away. It's like you're not going to run away from your kids when they're in trouble. So that's the heart. And the last one is physical. I like action. I like running around doing stuff. And I get to do that. It doesn't make me tired. My wife likes teaching. She likes doing kids program. That doesn't make her tired. So together, we, we share this ministry, sometimes both getting shot at, which she hates. And I don't mind that much as long as I don't get hurt. And then, or I'm helping with kids programs, which she will never get tired of, but I will. But I know it's good. And we work together. But most importantly, it's God first. Then intellect and heart is next. And then our physical needs last. And if you keep it in that order, I believe God's will will be done and you'll get to have fun also. So I'm talking with David Eubank. Uh, We are talking um, about Free Burma Rangers. I want you to go to their organizational website, which is freeburmarangers.org. I also want you to participate in this two-night Fathom Events movie event, February 24 and 25. That is also Free Burma Rangers. Um, And David and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. And I'm going to ask him the question that I know you want me to ask, which is, 
how do you take your kids into war zones? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you actually do that? So we're going to have that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with David Eubank, I want you to visit him at freeburmarangers.org. And I want you to consider going to the two-night movie event. Uh, it's a Fathom event, February 24 and 25. You can go to fathomevents.com or, or you can go to freeburmarangers.org uh, and get the information um, about the film and, and going and seeing it. David, um, I'm going to ask the question that I know you've been asked before. Um, you and Karen, it's one thing for you know adults to make these kinds of decisions. Talk with us about how you take your kids into the environments where God has called you to go, um, you know, when the bullets are flying. Yes. Well, we were invited to all these places. We didn't just go. We were invited into Burma by a tribe that said, come and help us. And in Sudan, mm-hmm. where people bombed every day in the Nuba Mountains, help us. Into the Kurdistan, up on Sinjar Mountain with Yazidis, help us. Into Syria, please help us. So we went on these invitations. And the first six, seven years, it was just Karen and I going in, in Burma. But once we started to have kids and Karen was pregnant, we thought, what are we going to do now? We go in with kids and they die. Can we live with each other? Can we live with God? What a horrible thought. Should we do it? And I remember Karen, we prayed together and Karen said, Dave, we should not be led by what could happen or bad things that might happen. We should be led by the opportunities God gives us. And my dad said that too. Dave, the devil's in the what ifs. Of course, the what ifs are real. Those are real threats. But you're not led by fear. You're led by opportunities. And fear makes you take notice of things and make sure you're not being led by pride or foolishness. But they're not, it's not a guide. The guide are the opportunities God gave. So when the kids came, we took them everywhere we could because we thought we loved them and want to be with them. And it's the best life we could give them. In Burma, the tribal people, as soon as we had kids, they said, hey, come show us our grandchildren. What mm. are you going to say? No, they're white. They're not allowed to go in dangerous areas like your kids. No, no, no. We'll treat them like our children. So we took them. And our, my kids grew up with thousands of aunties and uncles, muahs and hadis in Burma that are close to to this day. And they grew up not much different than the Americans did in the 1800s going west on the Oregon Trail. You know, there was no fire department to save you or the police to come get you or hospitals or necessarily even schools. Mom and dad and kids were together as a family unit. And I remember once we're going in Sudan, my middle daughter, Suzanne, was about oh, nine or 10. And we landed, we're going with the SPLA North, got bombed every day into the caves in, in the Nuba Mountains. And my daughter Suzanne said, Daddy, we're not just a family, we're a team. And each one of my, our kids has decided to follow Jesus on their own. And when, we, when they got old enough to participate in conversations, which is you know, quite young, three, two, three years old, we'd pray together, should we go here? Should we go there? And they, they know it's dangerous. Boom, boom, bang, bang. They saw dead bodies since they're tiny. That, that made them cry, but it didn't give them bad dreams. Those are real people. I remember once we were with a wounded guy who'd lost his face and his eyes, and he was recovering now. He had no hands either. And at the end of helping treat him and he was healing, I told my kids, who were then five years old, eight and 10, I said, hey, go give him a nice gentle hug. And my kids' faces kind of tensed up like, oh, it looks really gross, you know, scary looking guy, no face, no nose, no eyes scar tissue, no hands. And I said, you know, daddy's with these guys all the time. And that could be your daddy. Would you want someone to touch your daddy? And they all teared up and they went and they hugged him. 
And he jerked back because no one had touched him like that. And he still had tear ducts and tears ran down his scarred face. And so my kids have grown up, you know, the Lord of the Rings when they were tiny scared them because of Gollum. Well, that's not even real. But real life, when people count, they've held bandages, they've held IV bags, they've helped people, they pray for them, they put their hands and touch them, and they get to ride horses. They don't have a lot of rules they got to follow except be good and, and love and forgive each other. And they've grown up riding, hunting, again, just like the people who made our country did when they went west. And so to me, it's the best life we can give them. We're in Syria right now. They're giving out food to displaced kids. And they get to see, mm -hmm. wow, I could have been one of them. I didn't, get, I didn't cho choose to be born an American. And what if no one came and helped me? And I, I've seen, too, how when my wife and kids go to a place, it just calms everything down. It makes people think, oh, you count. And that's, just, that's not why we do it, but that's a, a fruit. In Kurdistan, when we were first involved there, a Kurdish military leader, the, the, the defense minister, said, you brought your son, your most precious thing? Mm -hmm. I give you my most precious thing, my country. And this Iraqi general said, you brought your kids? You must think American kids are equal to Iraqi kids because our kids are here too suffering. And so my wife and kids don't come to be at the front line in the fighting, but to be just back where families are breaking free and need comfort and help. And that's their part. And I just thank God. I do thank God they're alive. They've, we've had many close calls of sicknesses in Burma, mortars and artillery in Sudan, all kinds of shooting in Iraq and Syria. And I'm really grateful they're alive. I, I don't know what I'd do if they were if they were gone. But none of us do in life. None of us. And so you go with the opportunities God gives you that are good. And this has been a wonderful blessing. My, our two oldest daughters are about ready to go to college. I'm going to cry. And um, our son is still with us. He's 14. But we put all these things in God's hands. So people are going to see the movie. And some people are going to say to themselves, um, I want to go and do that um, because there is no more Western frontier in America, right? There right. is only sort of the um, what what appears to many people to be the very unexciting path of of education and more education and then a cubicle job. So there are going to be people, there are going to be Christians who are going to see this and they're going to say, "I want to go and do that." Can you just can you just address the um, uh, the ways in which the appropriate ways in which people can support what you're doing, um, and do what you're doing, but maybe not at, at, on the very front line. Well, first I want to say, Carmen, I hope I get to meet you sometime. You're so like an awesome lady. <laughs> what a cool lady. Um, I think most importantly is first just say, God, what do you want of me? I give up everything. And it's good to have that check. Like, did I sell out taking this job? Did I settle? You know, only you know deep in your heart if you settle for less. And so take your job, your vocation, all your responsibilities and dare to lift them back to God and put them on his altar. And if you're married and you have kids, do that with your whole family because you're in this together. Everybody put it up on the altar, their hopes, their dreams, their qualifications, their jobs and say, God, thank you for that. Do you want me to keep going that way or do you have something else for me? I think that's the very first question. Give it all up. Like the rich young ruler when he said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus had an answer for him that was different than other people. But, you know, get, sell everything in his case. Whoa, no, I don't want to do that. And he went away sad. We don't want to go away sad. We want to go happy. And if God gives you back that vocation and that job, then run for it. For the glory of God, for the good of other people and your own joy. 
go for it in that job. But if you give it up and he gives you something new, go for that too, because you're going to be walking with faith with him in this new thing. But you'll only know if you take it up and put it on the altar. And then in terms of work like we're doing, or there's all kinds of work like this, even in, in America. Again, it may not involve bullets and shooting, but there's all kinds of needs. But you lift those things up that you're interested in, whether it's helping a homeless shelter in America or going to a war zone in the Congo, and you say, God, I want to go. Do you want me to go? And if he says yes, well, then go. And if you feel led to come and volunteer with us, email us and show up, and you, we'll both see if God makes it a fit or not. But if you I don't get it. the, <laughs> yeah, if you don't get the, I got to go, then the things you can do is pray for, for people like us and those we're trying to serve and all the many organizations that are helping other people. Pray for them. Send money only if God tells you to, because you should send your money where God tells you to. Um, talk to your elected representatives. You know, recently the U.S. had promised the Kurds and the Christians we're going to stand with them in northeast Syria, and we broke the promise. And the Turks attacked. Over 200,000 displaced. Write your congressman and say, or the president, I love you. I support you. But that's, not, that's a mistake. You know, we have to be willing to tell people when mistakes are made. When you break a promise, that's a mistake. Especially when people die like they did. One of my team members died on this last mission because of that. So we say things like, sir. I love you. I'm praying for you. That's a mistake. Please change it. It's never too late to change. I'm behind you. I'm with you. And so however God leads you, though, not, not what I'm saying, Dave, you think on the radio, but whatever God tells you to do. I don't know all truth. I just see what little things in front of me. And so I think that those are different ways you can get involved. But I think most important is to say, God, what, what am I doing in my life? Is this it? And sometimes he'll say, it. no, you've been chickening out, man. Go. Or he'll say, yeah, that's it. I'm going to bless you. Keep doing it. Enjoy it. Dave Eubank, um, man, I love you. I already love you like a brother. I can't wait to see the film February 24 and 25. You guys can find it at Fathom Events. Um, you can also find more information at freeburmarangers.org. Um, Dave, we're going to pray. We're going to pray our way out of this. Lord God, I awesome. thank you for Dave and Karen. I thank you for uh, their family. I thank you for the ministry you've set before them. And I thank you for deploying them into the world that you so love. Um, to just honor you and glorify your name. Protect them, give them all they need today uh, to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.